Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So what a guest that we have uh, today. I mean, we have a guest that uh, has started six different companies, four exits. I mean, the startup war stories that we're going to be you know, hearing today are going to be mind-blowing to many of you. Uh, and I'm really excited to have him today. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Will Grayling. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in China, uh, obviously, you know, you, you grew up there, but uh, then, you know, rather quickly, you know, you guys uh, ended up moving here to the U.S. So, so tell us about the upbringing and especially that transition. So I grew up in southern part of China called Guangzhou, and uh, my father was a uh, professor at the Institute of Fine Arts, and my mother was a professional ballerina. So um, they were, like many folks uh, at that time, uh, going through the Cultural Revolution in what they call cadre schools, reform schools. <laughs> so we came here to the United States in 1980, right after the Cultural Revolution. And uh, as immigrants, um, with very little money to, uh, to our names, but uh, it was definitely at that time the, the land of opportunities. And um, I went through middle school and high school here in Seattle, Washington and then went to the University of Washington for uh, two bachelor's degrees and was recruited by the U.S. Navy as a nuclear submarine officer. And I joined, uh, joined the Navy and uh, served on a ballistic sub for about five and a half uh, years total, uh, which includes training and, and so forth, and then moved to the East Coast uh, to Boston for graduate school at MIT where I got a couple of master's degrees and then uh, found my passion for entrepreneurship while I was finishing up my thesis. And here, you know, also, I mean, I want to ask you because it's something that, that I find remarkable when you're part of the army, I think that to a certain degree gives you the discipline. I mean, you were there for six years. So I'm sure that, uh, you know, you, you've applied many of those lessons to the way that, that you're going to war with your own companies. So, so what, what, what have you learned, you know, there, you know, that, that you're definitely applying as an entrepreneur that he came in handy? I think the experience in the Navy was certainly one that um, helped me learn to serve as I was serving to learn. And the, the kind of discipline in teaching, especially in the nuclear program, where you have to learn a lot of different technical disciplines and understand how 
the nuclear submarine works from all the way from the reactor plant, you know, to different subsystems, electrical systems, weapon systems, navigation systems. You have to understand very systemically how something works. And that, that was a terrific training for, uh, for me. And I really appreciated the people that I served with and a lot of people that were also like-minded. They had to go through a lot of filtering to, uh, to get to a submarine, as you probably know. And uh, so I thought that, you know, for a young person uh, like myself, it was uh, it was terrific training. Um, in fact, you know, in, in about two weeks, I'm going to be going to uh, the Naval Academy uh, to swear my uh, my third son um, in. He's joining the Navy as well. Uh, he's going wow. to the Naval Academy. In fact, I have two sons in the Naval Academy right now. Uh, one is about to be uh, a third year and one's going to be a first year. So. Um, I, I definitely feel that uh, it was worthwhile training. Although I have to say, both of my kids went in that direction on their own without uh, without a bunch of pushing from me. So that's, that's the amazing. Truth. Well, congrats! I'm sure you're really proud. So, so in this case, after the army, like you were saying, you went to MIT. So, um, and there you went to study. I have to correct you, by the way. Army and Navy were rivals. Oh yeah. So go, go Navy. Go Navy. Beat Army. Navy. There you go. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Good to know. So so I guess in this case, after that, you went to MIT and uh, there you studied two masters at the same time. Is that right? Yes, I went through a, a program at that time. It was called Leaders for Manufacturing. Uh, now it's called uh, Leaders for Global Operations, LGO. Um, and I was fortunate to be able to uh, study electrical engineering, computer science uh, at the same time as getting my master's in business. So then tell us about, because during this time is when the idea of your first baby came to, came to mind. Then tell us about how you came up, you know, with this idea, which ultimately, you know, became your, your first company. And what were the sequence of events towards bringing it to life? So I, I got caught up in the entrepreneurial space, actually, by participating in a company that wasn't founded by me, but I really helped, helped launch while I was still uh, in grad school. So essentially, my first experience as a startup was uh, rescuing another startup that was about to fail. And they had a great technology, but didn't have a product market fit at the time. So I decided to join in. I had no experience. I just dove in. I ended up having to borrow some money from my parents and my you know, uh, mother-in-law, father-in-law. And um, we scrounged up enough to you know, keep the computer server going and uh, built the first prototypes. And uh, mind you, I was still finishing up my, uh, my schooling while I was uh, acting as the president of this new company with three people. Um, so I was the third. Um, and we ended up raising a couple million dollars uh, for that company and, uh, and actually found a, a really nice product market fit in the mobile enterprise uh, application space. But uh, interestingly enough, um, as I was uh, recruiting and building the team, we had about 20 some odd people at the time, I was uh, about to raise the next round of capital. And I think the founder uh, was, uh, you know, the founder had some other ideas. And, you know, I said, maybe we should find a CEO to come in and help us run this because now we're talking about raising 10 million and uh, and so forth and i think he wanted to stay and as ceo and and uh you know he had this this vision of wanting to run things himself 
long and short of it, I came in one day and he uh, decided that I was no longer a fit for the company. So I get fired from uh, this company that uh, that I joined as a startup. And, um, you know, so that uh, uh, I had brought in a bunch of friends and so forth. Now, that was kind of a, a shock, but everything actually happens for a reason. And I learned my lesson, you know, in that experience where, you know, I coming in as a third person became really a 5% shareholder and the founder was the, you know, majority shareholder. And he ultimately get to decide on what, you know, path to go. And, and that was right around the, you know, the dot-com era. So, you know, since he controlled the shares, he controlled the votes. So that was a great lesson to learn from, from there. And he can do whatever he wanted with the company. Now, unfortunately, the company didn't survive the dot-com bubble. And, um, and then, you know, those who I raised money from, unfortunately, lost, uh, you know, lost their money. But really three months after that, I decided to start my own company. I was still finishing up school, but this was truly my own company at this time. And I was able to control the, the direction and I bought the company part cash, part equity, and part royalty with a technology that I found. Again, a great technology, but didn't find a product market fit. So what I did was then rebuild the team and then put that market uh, product out to market. And we ended up finding a product market fit about 13, 14 months later. And that company ended up being uh, acquired shortly after September 11th in uh, 2000. Uh, 2001. So um, we were fortunate to have a positive return on our invest, uh, investments. And uh, uh, I've never seen so many zeros in my bank account before. So that was a, that was a great... Uh, How old were you? So at that time, I was 32. And this is when you technically became a millionaire. So That's good right. stuff. Good stuff. So, so Will, in your case, obviously, this gave you the access and visibility to the full cycle, you know, building, raising, scaling, and exiting, which does, that, that is very powerful because it gives you also the confidence of the journey that you have in front of you and that it's possible. So after this, you actually went at it again. So, so what was this next company? So the next company, I very naively wandered into the payment space. Now, this is end of 2001. Remember, we still had those black and white phones and Motorola's and Nokia's. And um, again, uh, a great technology that I found that was able to bypass the mobile operator SIM card and uh, create a virtual SIM to take over the SIM toolkit command set. So in other words, we can put an application without having to go through the mobile operator, which used to have the wall garden at the time. And I thought, hey, how cool would it be? You know, SIM card is just a 7816 smart card, you know, and smart cards were proliferating in Europe. And um, I thought, how cool would it be if, you know, we could put a little reader to replace the back of that little shell on our phone and be able to use it to make card present transactions in a remote environment for a safer and cheaper transactions. And, and that was a nice um, experiment for us to try. But what I realized that within Literally four or five months after we started getting out there, uh, I realized that I was in what's called a two-sided platform. Um, in other words, I had a chicken and the egg dilemma. 
merchants don't care about your solution that's a payment solution unless there are lots of consumers that are uh, using the solution already. So building a mobile wallet back at that time was super, super hard. And then consumers don't care unless you have lots of merchants that are accepting that form of payment. And um, so I very quickly decided that if we weren't going to pivot and change courses, we were going to die. So we pivoted from a two-sided platform to a one-sided platform, and we decided to um, turn it into the world's first pocket-sized point of sale. And we said, well, if we can control this mobile phone, it has the battery, the communications, the display, and everything, why not put the smart card uh, reader and the MagStripe reader and a little infrared to a printer attached to it, and then offer this as a solution for those who are mobile that needs to accept credit cards. And we packaged it together. We brought it out to market. We raised a whole bunch of uh, capital to uh, to scale it. And we were growing. And uh, we were selling uh, because we were a fraction of the cost of those dedicated point-of-sale terminals that were much bigger, much more expensive. So we packaged it. And as we raised capital, this was the first time that we really raised venture capital on the outside. And as we raised venture capital on the outside, you know, in this particular company, we thought that we would, you know, accelerate and grow, but the still mobile POS industry was very new. As the company grew, you know, one of the VCs had uh, asked a question of, uh, hey, what happens if you get hit by a bus, Will? You know, you, do you need a second in command to come in? And so we started a search for a COO to come help me. But long and short of it is that uh, through a, a stage of, of uh, mistakes, the CE, COO search turned out badly. But next thing we know is I was trying to be unselfish at the time. And I said, look, um, we found this one guy. Maybe we should uh, have that person be as the CEO. And I don't care what I'm called. Right. And unfortunately, we brought the wrong CEO in. And collectively, we as a board, you know, uh, looked at the the name brand and, and what what was promised. But the reality was vetting it, the top leadership of an organization is so, so important. Yeah. And we began to lose uh, our culture. And um, and when I brought this up to the board, you know, it was very hard for, um, you know, one of our lead investors to admit that we made a mistake. I knew we made a mistake. Why was it so difficult? Because of ego or, or why? It's very difficult to turn back to your partners and yeah. say, hey, guys, you know, we just put some money in. We made a mistake. We now got to change horse. Um, well, obviously, obviously, what it creates at the end of the day is uh, the harmony, not to be completely disrupted at the board level. So was that the case? It was uh, we had a, a very split um, investment group because we knew that at the top leadership, there was trouble and we had to fix it. Yeah. So at that time, there was a camp that, you know, vast majority of the investors uh, was on my side. And then there were some minority investors. So there was a power struggle. And unfortunately, these things do happen. So the lead VC actually had them, had enough shares to vote to keep that CEO in. And then removed me from the position. And then that company struggled for another two years and eventually was sold to Verifone. Right. But 
Um, that also allowed me an opportunity then to start my next company, which mm -hmm. also learned how important it was to have board harmony, to have investor harmony, and um, to be able to admit mistakes when we make them and, uh, and be candid. So that third company that I started um, was when smartphones came along. So yeah. you no longer really need to have a de dedicated uh, separate device for a POS. So now um, through another friend's invention, we were able to plug in a little reader. Now you remember square readers and so yeah. forth, but we yeah. were out there slightly before square even was. Um, and then and as it turns out, we became the largest supplier to everybody that was, you know, a lot of people that was competing against Square, whether it was PayPal, the little blue triangle readers or the half moon readers or, you know, the, the readers for Intuit, we supplied to them and a whole bunch of other companies. And that company was eventually acquired by Ingenical, uh, one of the largest point of sale manufacturers in the world in 2012. And, uh, and then through that uh, experience, um, I was then able to go full circle 10 years after I first started uh, my first mobile wallet company. We're now all carrying smartphones and, and we still didn't have a mobile wallet in 2012. So my business partner and I, uh, George Walner, uh, he and I sat down and says, why can't we find a way to have the phone interact with the point of sale? It's because we're waiting for all these point of sales to change over from the old Magstripe readers to new NFC readers, and we know how long it takes for that transition to take place. So George actually invented a great technology called magnetic secure transmission. And we've been you know, looking at how do, we, how do we interface? So one morning in, in December of, of uh, 2012, I remember getting a phone call from George where he had just completed his first transaction using this new technology. And he says, I made the first transaction work. So I was absolutely elated because I knew that there was a, a key piece of technology that's necessary, again, to create a product market fit. So uh, I dropped everything, started writing patents and writing business plan. And next thing you know, we knew that no one was going to believe us. So uh, we had to build not only the technology, but we had to build out the entire mobile wallet and the application, the server side and everything. So the hardware. So we launched that solution and became um, the number one rated wallet in 2014 compared to Apple Pay and Google Pay. And at that time, there was a you know separate wallet called SoftCard. But uh, long and short of it, um, by Consumer Reports, because we were the most accepted mobile wallet in America through that uh, technology, Samsung decided that they wanted to get in the race and um, they offered to acquire our company and uh, wanted me and George and the team to help them launch Samsung Pay. And that was, that was quite a hit. I mean, that was your, your biggest success to date. I mean, it was reported that it was like at least 250 million. So, um, so unbelievable. So, but I'm sure that, you know, from from dealing as well with 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 a big organization with a partner you know of that caliber you know i'm sure that 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 you were able to really get your lessons as to you know how you know to really make sure that it's going to work out that it's going to be a good partnership i mean how what did you learn from that especially with 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 doing such an acquisition with with such a big
big player like Samsung? Well, it's a great experience with Samsung. And uh, Samsung is an incredible organization with hundreds of thousands of employees throughout the world and uh, in multiple sectors, the largest consumer electronics uh, maker in the world. So we learned a lot uh, being in, in, that, uh, in the organization and learning how to incorporate our technology and how to work with their engineering team to incorporate it into every Galaxy smartphone starting from Galaxy S6 forward. And, and how do you work in a very rapid pace with quality to get these products out? And it's, you know, Samsung is amazing, amazing company that, that can build uh, products like that. And then we work with them on the software side and the marketing team. And it's a collective effort to create what they called really uh, what we call differentiations. They basically see it as uh, differentiations to be able to sell you know, more of their phones and, and their platform. So, of course, in large companies, there is a certain DNA and a great mode of, of how uh, they get product out. But then... You know, when you're talking about building a, a super wallet or a digital wallet, one of the things what I see is that working with big companies to change modes, it's very difficult to build a service company, especially a service company that requires you to have a digital wallet and a super wallet that is going across different devices. It doesn't matter what phone, doesn't matter what PC, you should be able to. Um, to create a universal service for consumers to use everywhere. And, and that was the ambition that I still have. Um, and that was why I ended up starting OB Loop after my three-year commitment with Samsung uh, was finished. Was that, that, was that the, the three-year vesting or did you leave early or did you stay a little bit longer? No, it was, it was my three-year commitment. Uh, just like I made a commitment to the Navy for five and a half years, um, I made a, you know, I made a commitment to Samsung, and I, I keep my commitments. Amazing. So then, so then, Obi Loop. So tell us about Obi Loop. It's about moving the next wave of commerce towards a um, what we call connected commerce. So in the late '90s, you had e-commerce when the internet first came on to replace physical wallets uh, with, you know, electronic wallets like PayPal and Amazon. So you can shop easier online. And then in the mid-2000s, late 2000s, you know, you had the mobile mobile uh, commerce wave, right? So mobile phones, mobile wallets. Um, but today, what you're moving towards, because now you have many fragmented channels that we're conducting commerce. Yes, there's physical, there's mail order, telephone order still. Uh, there is web, there's app. There's emails, there's text message, there's um, chats, right? So there's all these social, all of these are different channels for you to conduct commerce, but they're fragmented. And there's no universal wallet that works across all of these different channels. And merchants are still sending us spam just to drive us either to, uh, well, some of them are not spam. Some of them are bills they yeah. want us to pay or an offer that I actually want to, to uh, take advantage of. But inevitably, I'm being driven either uh, onto the website for self-service, logging in to pay my bills, or to call customer service if I have any questions. Yeah. 
So we need something that connects all of these different channels that still works across devices, across different channels, across different tender types, whether I'm using my credit card, my debit card, or my bank account, it doesn't matter. And, and that doesn't exist. So I saw the opportunity and I ended up acquiring multiple companies uh, after I left Samsung. Uh, I acquired SimpliTap into the uh, OV loop. Um, SimpliTap invented the tap and pay postcard emulation solution. So the ability for your mobile phone to receive a token in the cloud and be able to pay on an NFC terminal, that's our patent. And even very big players are now licensing our patent to use for tap and pay. Nice. And then we invented some uh, technologies ourselves for what's called multi-mode messaging so that you can go across any channel and, and use the messaging not just with your thumbs, but with the power of your voice that send text and uh, voice simultaneously to have a much better experience. But all of it, what we're doing is inventing two fundamental things. One is we invented a super messenger for businesses to be able to send you interactive bills and offers to across any of their existing channels, whether they're an agent, if you're on a chat, your email blast, text message, social, IVR, doesn't matter. Once you get this interactive offer and bill, yeah. if you have any questions, you just tap um, a interactive chat, multi-mode chat. You can get your questions answered, whether it's about a product or a bill, a $20 late fee you're complaining about. So you can resolve it. So you can convert it. And then you hit pay. And when you hit pay, we allow you to pay much faster and easier. Of course, the very first time you still have to fill out some information. But the very next time you come, you now are logged into your own super wallet. And with that own super wallet, you can use your biometric, facial, uh, you know, fingerprint, et cetera, and be able to pay much faster and safer. Right. So that level of interaction, interactive messages creates much better conversion and much better customer experience for the businesses, for their existing customer base. So there's no need to worry about, it's a one-sided platform, by the way. You don't worry about how many people have a super wallet because eventually they'll have a super wallet. It's much better to send it to them across all these channels anyway to have a much smoother uh, experience. So that is one, it's the super messenger for brands to be able to have interactive bills and offers. So the second thing that we built is also a one-sided platform, but it ties in with the super messenger. Um, and that's the super wallet itself. So what we ended up doing was create the world's first private crypto vault that can let you really use any device, store your tokens and credentials, your bank accounts, your ID membership, all of that into a private vault that's controlled by you with your own keys that no one else has, with your own crypto keys derived through your password. And through this, um, super secure private crypto vault that you control, not we control, right? Our admin cannot access it. All the other wallets today basically has a, a pool of data that they store and they encrypt. And if anybody gets keys to the access to that kingdom, they have access to the whole kingdom. And I certainly wouldn't trust uh, a database like that for me to put all my passwords for all my accounts and you know all of my credentials. Yeah. So we decided to create a super wallet 
that A works everywhere. So in other words, you can tap and pay, not only at places at NFC, with NFC, but we also created a little super card called the valet that remember the technology that's, that that uh, we talked about yeah. with MST. We're incorporating NFC and MST uh, also, and we'll basically allow people to store credentials uh, securely on a uh, private device that they can tap and pay everywhere. And by the way, this little device can also help you find your keys and find your phone, like an AirTag, yeah. right, or file. And um, and we're going to let you do all kinds of stuff with this super card. So we have a super card with a super wallet. And then um, in the super wallet, our goal is to really empower people to be able to take control of their own data and be able to even monetize their own data. So, I mean, that sounds like a lot a lot of things. They will. So, so I'm sure that for this, you've had to raise a little bit of money. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised uh, roughly 40 million already with 20 some odd million of my own capital. And uh, we have strategic investors like Verizon Wireless. And uh, we have uh, folks that are excited about what we're doing to bring connected commerce and super wallet into play. Very cool. And and this is not the only thing that you're doing. You also have another company that you are uh, leading and it's called Indigo. But uh, Indigo, essentially you, you uh, ended up taking the reins, you know, out of... Uh, you know, it just happened. You know, it was it was not the company that you founded. It's the company that you invested in. So tell us about, you know, how you came across, you know, the company and how did the investor role transition into a operating role? And more importantly, now you're running two hyper-growth companies that are quite demanding. So how do you really label and balance, um, you know, yourself? But before we get to that balancing, tell us about Indigo and how, you know, did that come about? So um, I've been passionate about electric vehicles for many, many years. As a nuclear submarine officer, you know, I, I very much uh, appreciate uh, power and how that's delivered uh, into vehicles. For electric vehicles, I was one of the first ones to buy a Chevy Volt when it first came out. And one of the first ones in Northeast to buy a Tesla sight unseen uh, Model S. And I'm on my fourth Tesla right now. So I've been passionate about, and I've invested in different electric vehicle companies uh, also. So about four years ago, I invested in a startup company that came out of MIT with uh, Professor Ian Hunter started it, that invented a powerful new technology um, called the robotic wheels. It's the first electric wheel that has the motor built into the wheel, as well as active suspension to be able to control the up and down motion as well as the rotational motion of the wheels. So that means when you put four wheels on or three wheels on, every wheel has traction control, active suspension control that lets you roll control, yaw control, gives you an ultimate level of control that previously was unimaginable. So this breakthrough, we were very, very excited about. And, uh, and we knew that um, this is transformative. So when I invested, it was still in the R&D phase, and I sat on the board as an investor. And what ended up happening was that um, we had a original strategy to be the Intel inside of these EVs that were coming about. And what we didn't realize was that as we're talking to a lot of the big companies, big OEMs, 
to sell them our robotic wheel technology um, was that many of them haven't quite uh, come to terms to heavily invest in the electric vehicle space yet. This was pre-chasing Tesla. But the last two years, things have changed a lot. So, but unfortunately, when we're selling a technology like this, what we were saying was, look, if we give you active suspension inside of your vehicles, you can make the vehicles much lighter and still have this magic carpet ride really smooth. Because the problem that we have right now in the, in the um, electric vehicle space is just replicating what's happening in the traditional vehicle space, where the average vehicle is 4,000 pounds. Very, very heavy. I don't know how much you weigh, but I weigh less than 200 pounds. And when I'm driving to and forth, 95% of that energy is used just to carry, you know, the uh, the carcass. Right. So that kind of waste of energy is okay when you're talking about oil that, you know, has already have a, a balanced supply. But if you're going to move that to the grid, our grid is already strained, as you know, and as you saw in Texas and brownouts in California. You want to move all of those vehicles onto the grid and still waste energy on a 4,000-pound vehicle? That is a total waste. But unfortunately, if you were to go down to have a, let's say, 1,500-pound vehicle like the Volkswagen Beetle in the 70s, you're going to feel like you're in a Volkswagen Beetle or a <laughs> or a, a, a golf car, right? So, um we, in order to solve that problem, we ended up um, deciding that the active suspension robotic wheels can create much lighter weight vehicles that are much more efficient, three times more efficient. That means three times smaller battery, three times faster to charge in the standard level two chargers that are out there. But unfortunately, the OEMs, they were not going to go to this kind of a vehicle. Initially, they're, they're not as heavily focused on EVs, but now they're focused on EVs. Now they're all chasing Tesla. So it's like us saying, you got big, we got small. Um, it's like us going to IBM and say, here's an Intel 8088 chip, can you, or 8086 chip, can you incorporate this and build a PC? Well, this is, they, they don't see the demand yet, right? So they don't see that the, uh, the accountant can use a spreadsheet called Microsoft Excel that can use a PC and therefore I should actually build more PCs. Yeah. So we're stuck. We're stuck. So I, um, and in fact, about a year and a half ago, we came to a, a major crossroads where the company was either going to give up um, or it had to take drastic steps. And that was when I decided to come in and I felt that the company uh, needed to pivot and I felt the company needed a level of entrepreneurship to, to really take, again, a product, a great technology, and find the product market fit. So I re, um, reinvested more of my capital and uh, took control of the company and redirected the company towards becoming an OEM company to build our own super efficient EVs. And we're aiming for the gig economy, ride hail, delivery market, where, as you can see, even with COVID, the exponential growth of delivery. Oh, yeah. Where retail is, is you know, going much more on how quickly can I get the package over to you? And there's a massive need. 
And when you look at the people that are uh, delivering for us right now, they're the gig economy drivers who can least afford a new car. They're the ones who are um, using on average 25 miles per gallon with their used car. And they're paying 50 cents per mile when you add up the depreciation of their car, the insurance, the maintenance, the fuel, and tax and license. We're talking 50 cents per mile or more. And when they add it all up, no wonder many of them can't make ends meet. And 65% of them are quitting their gig economy jobs because within the first six months because they can't make the, uh, the math work out, the unit economics work out. So Alejandro, we decided that that was our target market. That was going to be how we're going to build super efficient, super comfortable, lightweight, affordable vehicles. And so we hired uh, a top-notch Volvo designer that uh, came in to help us design. We started working with manufacturing partners that are willing to manufacture our, our um, motors for us. We're now talking with top-tier manufacturers that want to produce the vehicles for us. And now we're about to, uh, to work on this path to raise even more capital to accelerate our path to getting the vehicles ready. But guess what? Even when we produce $20,000 ultra-efficient electric vehicles, we realize our true competition are the used cars that, are, that they're driving. These are the Toyota Camrys and the Priuses and the Ford yeah. Focus and the Fits. So how are we going to compete against that? So we have to compete against the cost per mile. The cost per mile, that 50 cents that I talked about. And the best way to compete against that cost per mile is that you have to understand how to do risk management. You have to reward those who are good drivers, who are hard workers. They have the time, but they don't have the financial means to afford a, uh, a good vehicle for them to do their jobs. So we decided and we're now working towards and, and working in conjunction with multiple companies including some of the largest uh, transportation network companies and delivery network companies to create fleets of mobility as a service, partnering with OV Loop. Because what is OV Loop doing with the super wallet is to empower consumers, to give them the financial inclusion capabilities for them to not only understand what their cost of driving is, to help educate them, but also provide them and with the ability to get their own data whether it's their credit scores, their driving scores, and their credibility to build up their own credibility so that they can offer their own credibility to get lower cost insurance, get lower cost finance, and to be able to get into one of our vehicles and drive for less than their own used cars. So that's the ambition that we're working towards. I mean, it's a big ambition. So how much capital have you guys raised to date here, Will? So Indigo has raised over $110 million so far. And um, we're looking to raise even more capital to help us grow. Yeah, I mean, with such, a, such an ambition, definitely requires a lot of money. So, so now, Will, one question that I want to ask you that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, imagine I put you in a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that time that you were coming out of MIT and, and starting your first uh, business in TitleNet. Imagine you are able to have a chat with your younger self and give that younger Will one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, based on what you know now that you're on your sixth company? 
That's a really good question. And I think I would give myself probably the advice of, of have faith in what you're doing. And it's okay not to have all the answers up front, but you have to be willing to adjust and adapt and just have faith that you'll find the answer if you continue to stick with it. And don't fear failure because you're going to fail many more times than you succeed, which you know I've certainly experienced. But every failure is just simply feedback. It's just feedback to tell you, pivot this way, pivot that way, and make the necessary changes to yourself and to the company that will eventually land a product market fit. Time will, will, uh, will get you there. So have faith. And even if you're running out of cash, don't lose faith. You'll find some way to make the ends meet. If I knew how hard it was when I first started, um, it might have scared me to, uh, to get started in the first place. But now having been through it, and by the way, I, you know, I stopped counting after the 19th time when I came within one or two payrolls from running out of cash. But every single time, I've been blessed uh, in so many ways to either have, you know, a customer come through with an order or a investor come through with a last minute, you know, convertible note or, you know, uh, closing the round just in time, et cetera, et cetera. So many of these little things, but just have faith and be willing to, to be wrong. It's okay to be wrong. Got to let the ego go. It's just take that feedback and adjust. I love it. So, Will, very profound. For the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You can reach me at, uh, on LinkedIn. And uh, just you can find me. Just uh, uh, do a search. Amazing. Well, Will, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.